are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Hey gang, it's great to see you. Love having the kids with us today. Four occasions in the Gospels, in the New Testament, where Jesus asked the same question, what do you want? Let me give you all four of them really quick. Number one, there were these two blind guys along the roadside, and they heard that Jesus was passing by. And they begin to call out to Jesus, and he stops, and he asks them that question. He says, what do you want? And they said, we want to see. And so Jesus, right there in that moment, restored their sight. And these two guys who had been blind, all of a sudden, they could see. Then you have this other situation where one day John the Baptist is with two of his disciples. We've talked about this recently. He points to Jesus and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And those two disciples, one of them was named Andrew, follows Jesus. And Jesus sees them following and turns around and asks them the same question. What do you want? Now, here's the deal. They knew what they wanted. Do you know what you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? We want to know where you're staying. In other words, we want to hang out with you. And Jesus said, well, come and see. And so they go, and they spent the whole day with Jesus. There's another occasion where James and John, disciples of Jesus, said to Jesus, would you do us a favor? He said, what's the favor? And they said, when you come into your glory, can one of us sit at your right hand and the other sit at your left hand? And Jesus said, can you drink from the cup that I drink from? You don't know what you're asking. They were asking for prestige. And then the last time that Jesus asked the question was there was a guy who was named Bartimaeus. He was blind. He was along the roadside, and he heard that Jesus was passing, and he yells out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody said, be quiet, old man. But he kept saying it even louder, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And so Jesus calls him. And they said, up on your feet, he's calling you. And so the blind man goes to where Jesus is, and Jesus says to him, what do you want? And here's the deal. He knew what he wanted. He said, I want to be able to see. I want my sight. And in that moment, Jesus restored his sight. And all of a sudden, this guy who has been blind can see. Can you believe? Amazing. So here we go. You ready for this? Look me in the eye just for a minute. Everybody in the room, will you? Here we go. We're looking at each other. We're together here. If you heard Jesus right now ask you that question, what do you want? December the 4th, 2022, you look back at the rest of your life saying, I'm as convinced of this as I am of anything in the world. I heard Jesus speak to me in church one Sunday morning, and he asked me, what do you want? If Jesus asked you right now, you heard his voice, Jesus said, What do you want? What would you say? In other words, what do you want? You want something. I can promise you that. 
There's not a person who doesn't want something. What do you want? Is there somebody that you love that's really sick and you want to see them get well? Is that what you want? Is that what you would say? Is there somebody who is far from God and you want them to know Jesus really bad? Is that what you would say? I want this person, Jesus, to come to know you. Would you want relief from a current situation where you feel a lot of pressure right now? If Jesus asked you, what do you want? Would you say, okay, this is what I want. So I, for the last several months, have been making this list of what I want. I've been thinking really hard about it. I've, I've added things. I've taken things out. I've put things back in. A lot of the list had things that I personally want for myself. I said things like, I want a more intimate relationship with God. That's what I want. Anybody else want that? I want to become more like Jesus. That's what I want. I want to help other people come to know Jesus. I really want that. I want intimacy and relationships. I want to love and be loved. That's what I really want. And then there were a lot of things on my list for others. Let me share part of the list with you. It's a working list. If you don't think it's complete, it's okay. It's, it's a working list. If you want to add things to it, you can. I want people to know Jesus. I can't imagine what would happen in this world if everybody came to know Jesus. I want the people that I love to be okay. I don't really know how else to say it. I want my wife, Annette. I want my daughters, Brittany and Morgan. I want my son-in-law, Tim. I want my granddaughter, Sadie. I want other people in my family, people that I love. I want their lives to be full. I want them to be okay. I want them to know God deeply. I want people who are sick to get well. I'm talking about physical illness. There's a lot of people that I'm praying for. I just want them to get well. I want abuse to stop. Sometimes I think to myself, God, I could not stand to know all the abuse in the world. I think I would go crazy. I just want it to end. I want not only physical illness, but emotional illness to be healed. There are people that I love that are tormented in their minds. I want people to be set free from addictions. I want world hunger to end. We sometimes live if it's, as if it's not a thing because we have so much food. It is a thing. It's happening all over the world. People are dying as a result of starvation. I want there to be world peace. What if this war between Russia and Ukraine was the last war ever fought in human history? It's much deeper than just two nations. It's I want all this divisiveness to end. I want all of this hate to end. 
I want all of this strife to go away. I want people to love one another. I want forgiveness to be given and received. I want peace. You might add some things to the list. But I think what we're really saying when we make a list like these, I think what we really are saying is simply this. We long for God to make things right. We, we, we live with this constant longing. It never goes away. It never stops. It's, it's always there. There's always this sense, this desire. God, can't you fix some of this? Won't you fix some of this? Can't some of this stuff just be dealt with? Can't you just set some of these things right? It's the prayer that people were praying 2,000 years ago. The nation of Israel. They were saying, God, will you make things right in this world? And God answered their prayers. He sent his son, Jesus. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand now on earth. And although the kingdom of God is not fully realized, I look around in the world today and I see there's the kingdom of God happening. God is making that right. And there's the kingdom of God happening. God is making that right. And there the kingdom of God is taking place. God is making that right. I read a story this week about a guy whose life was spiraling out of control. Everything was wrong. But one night in a car by himself, God spoke to him. And in that moment, his life was changed. And he turned to Jesus. And it was like he was born all over again. He had a whole new life with a new perspective and new values and a new outlook. And in that moment in his life, God made something right. The kingdom of God happened right then and there. And so I want to take you back and remind you of that story and talk about where God is today and that whole process of that story. So Luke chapter 2 is one of the most familiar Christmas passages that we share. And so let me take you to the first verse and begin reading with you from, John, from Luke's gospel. In, in those days, Caesar Augustus, now you know the name Caesar Augustus, he is the emperor of Rome. In fact, he is the first Roman emperor. He, he essentially established the empire, finally brought it together as one. He has been the emperor for 27 years when this takes place. He issued a decree because he had the power to do that kind of thing. That a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. So every territory that he had laid claim to, he said, everybody is going to go to their own town and register and we're going to take a census. Usually you would do that for two reasons. One, to access taxes. And the others to determine military eligibility. Because in Caesar Augustus' mind, there was more territory to conquer. 
So then there's like a side note, a parenthesis. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. You might say, I don't know what that is important for. I don't know what it means. It simply goes like this. For the sake of the Roman Empire, they established boundaries geographically all over their territory. And Judea came under Syria and was subservient to Syria's governor. And so that's why the side note is there. And everyone went to their own town to register. So you remember Mary and Joseph, the father, the mother of Jesus. Joseph, the carpenter, they lived in Nazareth. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth. That's where they were living at the time, this small village called Nazareth. They went from Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he, meaning Joseph, belonged to the house and the line of David. So what city did they go to? Bethlehem. It's very significant. He, he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. You remember the story that they were pledged to be married, the betrothal lasts for one year, but during that year, Mary conceived by the Holy Spirit and was with child. And so although the official wedding has not taken place, this is what's going on in their lives. So while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, they're referring to Jesus, of course. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger. Now, if you were with your young children today and you went to a stable and your young child wandered over by the manger, the feeding trough, you would probably say to your child, get away from there, that's nasty, that's where they eat. That's where she placed her son in a feeding trough, a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. <clears throat> Sometimes you do stupid things, and a few years ago, I did another stupid thing. It was a Sunday morning like this. I got out of bed. I had my quiet time. I went over my sermon. I ran in, got a shower, got dressed for church, jumped in my car and headed toward church. I was only a couple of blocks from church, and um, I did something really bad. Uh, I took my eyes off the road, um, wasn't going real fast, but I reached over my glove box to get a tissue, and while I was focused on the glove box and the tissue and not on the road, I rammed into the car in front of me, which shoved that car into the car in front of them. So, I've created a three-car pileup just because I wasn't watching the road. What's interesting is that the car in front of me, um, they were going to our church for the very first time to visit. I had met them a few weeks ago at a wedding, and so now that they met me, they decided they were going to come and visit the church. And so on the way to church for the first time, I ran them in behind which made them run into the car in front of them. But it's okay. Uh, the car wasn't brand new. They had already had it for a full month. And so uh, th they were kind. They were gracious. I felt awful. We, we call the police. The police come. And, and so the policeman immediately recognizes me because he had visited the church. <clears throat> and the church was only about two blocks away. 
And he immediately just came to my rescue, not theirs. And he said, oh, pastor, look at this. Oh, we're going to get you out of here. I'll take care of you first, and then I'll take care of them. They can wait, and we'll get you because you got to get to the church. you got to preach. And, and I felt bad. It didn't feel right. I said, but it was all my fault, and they can start without me, and I'll, I'll be okay. Go ahead and take it. Oh, no, no, no. We're going to take good care of you. So that couple ended up becoming a part of our church, but over the years, we would occasionally kind of joke and laugh a little bit about the fact that I caused all of this grief in all of their lives but yet I was the one who was shown great favor and taken care of first so I could go off and do my thing. It just didn't seem right. In, in life, unfortunately, all matters like that aren't so trivial. In, in life, there are times when we say, things are not right here. They're not like they should be. It's not, it's not what was intended, I'm sure. It's not what we dreamed of. It's not what we hoped for. Life is not going like we thought it should be. Things are not right here. And, and if you were a person who lived in Israel 2,000 years ago, it was a state of mind for you. You lived under the rule of another government. And although this was the land you had lived in and this had been your home all of your life, another government had come in and taken over and Rome had decided that we are going to rule over you and you are not your, long, your own anymore and you're not free to do whatever you want. In fact, they were overtaxed. And so you've got people like Mary and Joseph living in this community in Galilee of Nazareth. He's a carpenter. They're trying to scratch out a living from the earth. They're very, very poor people. They're as lowly as you can imagine. And 1,500 miles away in Rome, there is Augustus Caesar who is treated like he is a god. He lives in lavish riches. He lives a life of royalty. And every so often the tax collector comes to take away from you so that Caesar can have more. Life is wrong. And so Caesar lifts his finger and says, we're going to take a census. Well, you've got to go to your hometown. But Mary is full term. It doesn't matter. She'll have to ride a donkey. It doesn't matter. Caesar has spoken and everybody will line up. And every step of the way is a reminder that life is not like it should be. Thirty-some years ago, Annette and I were living in Nashville, Tennessee, and we were pastoring our first church. It was a, a little church of about 60 people when we went there, and within a few months, it was a church of about 30 people. It wasn't going well. We didn't have many resources at all. Um, they, they, they paid us, but they couldn't pay us much, and so to try to get bills paid, and at the time, we had one little girl, Brittany, uh, I took a newspaper out, throwing newspapers early in the morning, seven days a week. And that was working also. And, and the church was just struggling in every way. And, and, and I wanted so bad to be a good pastor, and I wanted to lead the church well, but it was, it was going the opposite direction. I, I remember every Sunday night, this little lady who was the church treasurer, Miss Hunt, she would go back in the back room, and she would count the offering with a family member, 
And she would come out as I was locking up because I unlocked and I locked up and I mowed the lawn and I printed the bulletin and I did. I was the only employee of the church. And, and, and she would say, good news, pastor, we've got enough to pay you this week. And, and as far as I can remember, every week there was enough to pay me, but there wasn't anything much beyond that. And I remember just wondering, God, you, you know we're here, right? I mean, you, you see us, right? I, I would go knock on doors. I remember one summer I knocked on a thousand doors in our neighborhood just inviting people to church. But the place was honestly kind of a wreck. The carpet was awful. It was just awful. A lot was awful. But we had no resources to do anything to make anything better. And, and I remember just kind of living in that sense of, God, there's a lot of heartache here. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of trouble, a lot of problems. Are, are you working? If, if God was working on our behalf, I couldn't see it. If, if God was moving, there was no evidence for me to see that God was moving. I, I just felt like life was mostly hard. And I remember one day I was sitting in my office at work, and a little office was just off the platform back here, just a little square cinder block office. And I walked down the platform and down the middle aisle and out the door of the church, down the sidewalk to the mailbox. And I took the mail out of the mailbox, and I'm opening it as I'm walking back into the church, and there's a letter that I'm not believing. I just can't believe it. It's, it's from a guy that I have no idea who he is. To this day, I've still not met him. And, and he's writing the letter to the former pastor who had obviously asked him for some financial support for the church. And he says, I've prayed for months about what to do, but God has finally made it clear to me that I should give you this gift and so use it however you see best for the church. I'll be praying for your church as you put this money to work. And it was a check for $5,000. Now, two things. you got to think it was 30-some years ago. $5,000 was worth a lot more than it is today. But it, it, it might as well have been $50,000. I, I couldn't believe it. That was so much money to us. And my parents lived an hour and a half away, and Annette's family lived closer than that. And they chipped in. A lot of the people of the church chipped in, sweat equity, labor, hard work. The $5,000 was enough. We were able to buy carpet. We were able to do a lot of things. And we basically rehabbed the interior of that little church and made it a beautiful little sanctuary. It was enough. It was enough to teach me that God had been working all that time even though I didn't see it. It was enough to convince me that God knew my name, that God knew who I was, that God knew our situation, that God cared about us and he loved us and he was working on our behalf even though we could not see what he was doing. Now let me talk to you for a minute about how that relates to what I read to you a moment ago. You've got a man who is Augustus Caesar, Caesar Augustus. He was born Octavius Gaius Therminius, the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. When Julius Caesar died, in his will he stated that he would adopt 
Gaius, Octavius, Therminius. And at that moment, he would become his sole heir. He left him everything that he owned, all of his wealth and riches. Gaius was a very bright man. He put all of that wealth to use. And he built a great military. And he became the first emperor of Rome. And he began to claim more and more territory. In the mind of everybody who was alive, the most powerful man in the world was Caesar Augustus. In 27 BC, when he became the emperor, they gave him a name which meant divine. They literally treated him as a god. And years ago, in modern-day Turkey, an inscription was found. And here's what it said. Divine Augustus Caesar, son of God, imperator of land and sea, benefactor and savior of the whole world. That's how he was revered. That's what the world thought of him. That's the kind of power that he had at his fingertips. And he issues a decree. And Joseph and Mary get their donkey and they get on the road for an 80-mile journey, although she is full-term and expecting a little baby. And they travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem because Caesar has spoken. Now, let me ask you a question. Did they go to Bethlehem because Caesar spoke? Is that why the baby was born there? Is that what happened? Did he wield that kind of power? Is he the one calling the shots? Is he in control? Is God out of it at this point? Is somebody else running the world? Absolutely not. Here's the reason they went to Bethlehem, because, because 700 years earlier, 700 years later, earlier, God spoke through the prophet Micah, and here's what he said, Bethlehem, out of you will come the one who will rule over all of Israel. It's because God spoke. And Caesar, as powerful as he might appear to the world, was simply a pawn in the hand of God. <laughs> because all the time God was at work listening to the prayers of the people, hearing them cry out, longing for God to make things right. And all along, God was at work putting a plan together. And, and here's what I just got to encourage you to do. Trust that God is working to make things right. 
even when you can't see it with your eyes, even when it looks like God's not involved, even when you can't trace what the hand of God is doing, even when you have those moments where you say, God, if you're, if you're doing something, I can't see it. If you're working on my behalf, I don't, I don't understand. I don't know where that's happening. It's not visible to me. When that, when that son that you're praying for seems so far from God, trust that God is working. When, when that daughter of yours is making decisions that you cannot understand and you seem, it seems to you that they're just, they're just a long way from the will of God, trust that God is working. When, when the pressure that you feel right now and the situation that you're in, it, it seems to you like you don't see an end in sight. You don't see things getting better. Trust that God is working. When that person that you're praying for is very ill today, trust in your heart that God is at work. When your circumstances aren't getting better, trust that God knows who you are and that he loves you and that God is at work. We have the elements with us today. It's a reminder of his presence. It's a reminder that Jesus is with us. And sometimes you may not feel his presence. Sometimes you may have a sense of, is he here? Does he know what I'm going through? Does he know what I'm feeling? And today, this is a reminder, Jesus is near. He is here. He is with you. He is working in your life. And so if you'll remove the, the lid from the bread and, and then remove the lid from the drink. I'm going to offer you a unique opportunity this morning. And that is instead of just simply eating and drinking together in a moment, I'm going to offer you the opportunity to stand with your elements and, and come down and kneel at the altar and receive them here. So let me take you back to 25 minutes ago. I asked you what you wanted. If Jesus asked you today, what do you want, what would you say? What, what did you say? What is it that you want God to do in your life today? And I believe the, the standing and the moving forward and the coming here is a way of saying, God, I trust you with what I want. And I trust that you're working in my situation today. So I'm just going to pause for a moment. If you want to come forward, you're welcome to come now. If you feel like you want to, then I would encourage you to do so. It's a big step of faith, too. So, Lord... I'm coming to say that I trust you with what I long for. 
And I'm reminded today by the elements that you are present, you're with me. And so when Jesus took the bread, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, eat it. So eat it, all of you, with me, will you? And then he took the cup and he said, this is my blood of the new covenant. Drink it, all of you. So, Father, we come to you today with this simple reminder that you're with us. And we say to you in this moment, we trust you. We trust that you're working in this situation. You know who we are. You know where we are. You know what we're going through. And you know what the deepest longing of our hearts are. And we trust you. In Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.